The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1648, she was born a, quote, daughter of the church, unquote, meaning that her parents were not married. Her father was a Spanish captain, her mother an illiterate woman. They lived in Mexico, or New Spain as it was then called. At age three, she followed her older sister to school and begged the teacher to include her in the lessons, and by age 17, she was one of the leading intellectuals in the New World. Her passion for learning took her from her grandfather's library into the convent, where she could study without being subjected to the restrictions that came with being a married woman in her day. Her name was Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, known in her time as the Tenth Muse, for the quality of her poetry and other writings, and also known as the Mexican Phoenix, as her powerful body of work rose from the ashes of religious condemnation and dispute. Today, she is widely viewed as one of the earliest feminist advocates, one of Mexico's first and greatest intellectual giants, and a poet whose talent is rarely equaled. Juana Inés de la Cruz, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. It's our fourth and final week in our second Thursday theme month. The theme this month has been Forgotten Women of Literature, and we reached back in time to Enedwana, Tsayen, or Wenji, and Emilia Bassano Lanyer. It has been a good month, a good theme month, and today is the fourth, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. Sor means sister, because she was a nun, and yet she was not a conventional nun, not what we might consider to be a conventional nun. She was a polymathic scholar, an artist, a poet, an uncontainable force. She wrote comedies for the stage and secular poetry, including love poetry, that are not suffused with religion. She also earned the condemnation of the church. She stood up for women, both in the subject matter of her works and by being a role model for girls and women to come. The 17th century, this is just Fantastic to go back in time and find a woman like Dela Cruz there waiting for us. Octavio Paz, the Nobel Prize winning poet, was glad to make that journey as well. He was one of her great champions. And his work to bring her to the attention of our modern world is one we still benefit from today. It's a good week to be talking about strong women as we say our sad farewell to Ruth Bader Ginsburg here in the United States. For those of you outside the country, she was a lion of the Supreme Court in a small package, a physically slight woman, frail in her older years, whose courage and fierce intelligence came through in her opinions. She is a delight to read. She will be missed. Once she was asked, well, how many women should be on the Supreme Court? How many would be enough for you? And she said, nine. Nine women. And if that shocks you, you know, there are only nine. So that's nine of nine, 100%. That's the point. And if that shocks you, if that seems like an overreach, you have to ask yourself why that is when for 200 years it was entirely men. How shocking was that? Was that wrong for some reason? I think the court, like all institutions, should reflect the people. I'm not in favor of 
nine women necessarily, but I'm also not in favor of nine Catholics or nine men or nine heterosexuals or nine New Yorkers. I'm not even in favor of nine Ivy Leaguers or even nine former judges. I like a mix. I like balance. I think that helps. But I'm in favor of nine passionate advocates for democracy, for the rule of law, for empathy, for intellectual rigor and consistency. That's my goal. That's the nine I want. And with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we are one step further away from my goal. And so we turn from a Supreme Court 20th and 21st century American icon to an icon of what was then called New Spain and what we now call Mexico. But first, let's hear a few listener emails. We'll have those after this. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. first email comes from Jenny. She says, subject, two questions. Hi, Jack. I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm a newer listener, and I've been listening to some of your earlier podcasts. In fact, after listening to the episode about Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes, I'm now reading Their Eyes Were Watching God. Two questions for you. Is there an index of authors slash episodes on your website? I'm finding the website difficult to navigate. Also, Will you be featuring Mexican, Mexican-American, or Latino authors for Latino Hispanic History Month, September 15th through October 15th? Thanks. 
Jenny in Sacramento. Well, Jenny, thank you for the email. I'm glad you've been enjoying the show and that it sent you toward Zora Neale Hurston, who's one of the greats. I'm sorry the website isn't working for you. The better way to see what we've got is probably to look at Spotify or one of the other podcast services, which might make scrolling and so on a little easier. If anyone has an idea for a website they'd like to see, a format they like, let me know. I feel like historyofliterature.com could use an upgrade, but who knows what works best for everyone? Not me. So let me know. Your request number two is an easier one. Here we are. (laughs) Here's the episode. Your wish is my command. I actually had this one planned and didn't realize that it was so fortuitously timed. In general, I hate to time episodes to history months or birthdays or other milestones like that. I find that it's hard to schedule. I have a guest who postpones and suddenly everything is thrown off and then I have to scramble. And I also feel a little bit exhausted myself by those topics. That's the bigger reason. Let's say I listen to 10 podcasts or read 10 magazines or these days more like 10 websites. When the 10 websites all cover the same thing at the same time, I get a little burned out of that topic. I like the websites that cover a range of topics all the time. So I might get a Mexican author in September, but also in November or June or February. But that's maybe just a preference. In this case, I'm glad to be bringing you today's topic during the month of celebration and commemoration. And I think we should probably have a theme month, one of these months, Latino authors, or maybe the Spanish Golden Era, or maybe Mexico month, or something like that. South America, Brazil month, we will see. The world is our oyster. Jenny in Sacramento, thank you for your email. Next up, listener R. Subject, good list. Jack, I am loving the podcast. I just finished the college-bound reading list one and was reminded of Harold Bloom's list in the Western canon. Can you recommend a list or two that you like? I would like a fresh take on picking up more fiction. Thanks, R. A list. I really don't have such a list. My response was, thank you for the email. I don't have a particular list in mind, R, but I have a couple of ideas. One is to roam around the best of lists that you find via Google. There are a lot of ranking sites and lists out there that other people have made. Once you locate a kindred spirit, it should be easy to put together a good reading list based on that. As for Jack's reading list... You might take a look at the History of Literature episode list. It's not ranked or anything, but if you scroll through the list of episodes we've done, you will find many excellent authors and works, and they are all Jack-approved. Thank you again for the email, and happy reading. And finally, an email from Evan. Subject, I take your podcast hunting. Dear Jack, here I am on a Saturday night, finally getting around to sending you an email. It's been on my mind for a year now, not written on any to-do list, just a recurring thought, something that my mind wouldn't let go. I sit drinking tea and reading a beautiful nonfiction piece by Juan Gabriel Vasquez. The piece references so many writers and literary scholars, and as I'm nearing the end of the piece, I have taken a break to send this email. I found myself saying, wow, thanks to Jack's podcast, I can actually keep up with this. I know Melville and Wolfe and Camus and Octavia E. Butler. And while I haven't read all of their work, I know why it is important and where to, well, place it in the history of literature. To be honest, I think your podcast has done as much or more for my literary passion 
than my entire MA in English. Few books of literary history can really do what you are doing. Knowledge about a subject is best passed with passion attached. And you do that. You do it better than any teacher I've encountered at any of the five universities I've attended. Yes, that's a big compliment. And I mean it. Hmm. Wow. That is quite flattering. I want to add a story to your mosaic of listener portraits. I discovered your podcast last autumn. I live in the remote boreal forest of northern Ontario, Canada, in a small town called Sioux Lookout, just north of Wisconsin, actually. The food that can be purchased here at the grocery store is poor quality and expensive. So many of us, myself included, spend much time in the bush hunting, hoping to harvest enough meat to last us the year. We also heat our homes with wood, which means long hours of cutting and stacking. It was during last year's autumn preparations and animal harvest that I first began listening to you. Your podcast would play in my vehicle on the long drives up to my hunting trails, drives with absolutely no other traffic or radio stations or cell service, drives with just your voice and the near winter air outside and the always low sun and a new growing passion for Dostoevsky and Toni Morrison and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and other totems of literature. And then I'd give you a break, and I'd head out alone with a rifle to walk trails in silence, looking for grouse or a deer or a moose in the endless seclusion of pines and leaf-shedding birch. And then, after dusk, when the hunt was over, you were in my ear again for the long, dark drive home down the northern highway, often seeing nothing for an hour but headlights on the winding road, not even a passing logging truck, not even the yellow dot of wild eyes from the roadside ditch. This is where I will always place the memory of your podcast. Lastly, I will restate something that your other listeners have stated in emails before. Your podcast has created a community a tangible one, as tangible and real as the lives I lived through reading. Just to hear that there are other people out there with the same passion for literature and its knowledges, people that cherish the empathy that literature offers, well, that makes me feel alive as much as books do, even if I will never get to meet the other members of this community in person. Living in such a remote location has some major perks, like the natural beauty, the slow pace, the quiet, but it also means I lack a physical literary community. Your podcast has filled this gap for me, and because of this, I thank you. And more than you, I thank all the listeners who I hear from in these emails. So if you or any of your listeners find yourselves wandering the isolated bush trails of Canada's north, maybe we'll be lucky enough to cross paths. And if so, we can also wander together through a quiet chat about our favorite authors. All the best from a poet and a literary lover in the North, Evan. P.S. If you or your listeners ever need to slow down from the pace of the urban world, you are more than welcome to take a break with my family in our small boreal home. The wood stove will treat you well. Mmm, Evan, I'm sure the wood stove would treat us well indeed. As would the company. Wow. The isolated bush trails of Canada's north with walks during the day and reading by night and good conversation in the middle. I am very glad. Glad? That's not enough. I'm honored to know that the 
humble little podcast has made its way into the woods and that it's doing its part for you. Thank you for such a beautiful and contemplative email. Quiet contemplation. It's a gorgeous life. A lot of people probably have no idea that you have that literary streak in you, but you're a better person for it, and it warms my heart to think of you up there with the wood fires heating your home for your family and renewing your soul with literature while you're at it. Good luck to you. We'll be back with the story of Sister Juana Inés de la Cruz after this. one gets when considering the remarkable life of Juana Inés de la Cruz is that she was born hungry for knowledge and never lost that passion. When she was three years old, she hid in the chapel of her on her grandfather's estate so that she could sneak into his library, which was next to the chapel, and read the books there. She learned Spanish and Latin at age three, and soon she taught herself the language of the Aztecs. This was New Spain, not yet Mexico, and it was still a world swirling with different cultures, old and new, although the intellectual world was also dominated by the Catholic Church. There wasn't really a secular press or a secular academy, or not much of one, anyway. For a woman, there were not many opportunities to live a life as a writer or scholar or professor, certainly not a book editor or anything like that. Those industries were still carried out through the Spanish colonizing government, the Viceroyalty established in 1521 after the conquest of the Aztecs. And the government was closely intertwined with the Catholic Church. And so... Juana Inés learned on her own through books, this marvelous mind of hers soaking up learning through those books, and she became one of the leading figures of her era. She was recognized at a young age, still in her teens. At 16, she was sent to Mexico City, which was the capital of New Spain, the seat of the Catholic Church in the New World, and the most populous city in the Western Hemisphere, a blend of Aztec and Spanish citizenry, a kind of polyglot metropolis. She was already quite a woman. At age five, she could do the accounts for her grandfather. At eight, she wrote a poem about the Eucharist. She was a master of Greek logic and taught Latin to young children. She wrote poems in Nahuatl, the Aztec's language, and she asked her mother if she might disguise herself as a male student so she could study at the university. That didn't work, so she studied privately. And by the time she was 17... She had been invited to serve in the court of the viceroy, and from there she came under the protection of the wife of the viceroy, the vicereen. The viceroy himself wanted to test her learning, so he arranged for a meeting of the leading experts in theology, law, philosophy, and poetry to come and meet her and to ask her questions. She was not given time to prepare. She was just asked to show up, and yet she handled all of their questions and more, astonishing everyone who was there. She received several marriage proposals after that. She was also known for her beauty in addition to her mind, but she turned them all down. 
fearing that being in the restriction of a marriage would limit her ability to study and grow. Instead, she entered the monastery of a group of Hieronymite nuns. The Hieronymites had more relaxed rules than the Carmelites, and she was allowed to study. This was her primary emphasis. She wanted, as she said, quote, to have no fixed occupation which might curtail my freedom to study, end quote. There was another leading intellectual of the day, Mexico. This is Mexico City, and really, New Spain in general is considered to have two savants from this period. One is Juana Inés. The other is Don Carlos de Siguenza y Gongora, who was three years older than her and also a brilliant man brilliant intellectual. He used to come to visit her in the convent's locutorio, which was a room where outside guests were permitted. He encouraged her to study the natural sciences as well. He was himself a great astronomer who took on personal risks to emphasize the discoveries of Copernicus and Galileo and to say we cannot reject this on domatic grounds. We can't insert dogma into it. It's math. It's science. It's the observations that our own eyes see and our own minds comprehend and calculate. It's not about a belief that comes first and affects how you view the world. It's about observations, testable hypotheses, and scientific advancement. He didn't live far from the convent, and one can only imagine how beautiful these conversations between the two of them must have been. I hope there's a play being written about this, if it hasn't been done already. Meanwhile, Juana Inés was collecting a large library of books, and she was supported by the Viceroy and the Vicerine, who were her patrons, and she was writing, too, an astonishing range of works. But before we turn to her writings, let's finish up her life. Her writing, as we shall see, brought her into conflict with the authorities. She was a great advocate for women, for the education of girls and women, for women writers, for women to publish. She wanted women to be appointed to positions of authority so that they could serve as a role model for other women and so that they could be in a position to educate other women and make sure that women received a strong education. She argued that this would avoid situations where male teachers were preying upon female students. These were radical arguments in their time. When she was told that women needed to support their husband, she said, one can perfectly well philosophize while cooking supper. For this and other things, she was attacked by the Archbishop of Mexico, along with other members of the church. She said that she thought her writing could perform a service for God, that it was itself a form of philanthropy, and they attacked her for this too. She was told to repent, and she may have, but there's some sarcasm there too, perhaps. I, the worst of all women, one poem begins. I read in one account that she wrote a document renouncing her learning that ended, I, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, the worst in the world, and signed it in her own blood. Things grew increasingly worse for her. The thing about being a heroic martyr, an inspiration to millions who come after you, is that your own life is often hell. She was forced to sell her books, 4,000 of them, which must have been like torture. She sold her musical and scientific instruments, and then when she was in her mid-forties, the plague arrived. She helped her fellow nuns who were stricken by the plague until she herself fell ill. I will save her funeral for the very end. Instead, let's turn to a celebration of the work that she was able to produce and the work that has survived. Not all of it has. What has survived may have been saved by the Vicerine. 
according to Octavio Paz, anyway. What we know of her works are astonishing. Here was a nun writing from a convent, and one might expect that she would write long poems glorifying God and Christianity, or theological arguments, or that kind of thing. That's there. That's present. It's certainly one of her interests. But there's also there are also secular love poems, there are dramas, there are comedies. It's not what we associate with a cloistered nun, is it? Not exactly, at least in my mind. She wrote a treatise about music that simplified music notation and argued for a better way to solve the tuning problems that people were having. Unfortunately, this treatise was lost. She wrote music, too. There's at least one that survived that was attributed to her. It's a four-part villancico called Madre La, sorry, Madre La de los Primores, which we've been playing throughout the show. Let's turn now to her poetry and hear some of the glorious verse that she produced. She wrote a poem called First Dream, sometimes translated as First I Dream, which is a good place to start. It's a long philosophical work which deals with that state of mind somewhere in between wakefulness and sleep, a state of contemplation where the body ceases its operations and the mind and spirit and soul become free. The imagination, the intellect rise above where you can see yourself as if in a dream, rising above the world, aiming at God, achieving luminosity, and looking across all of creation like an eagle surveying the landscape. It's dazzling. It's breathtaking. It's impossible to understand. The abundance of the universe is overwhelming, and reason arrives to try to understand and observe and categorize and explain. It's an intellectual tour de force as possessed by intellectual magic as it is impressive for its rigor and the application of learning and the history of thought. Dive into this poem, people. You will find yourself on a journey. It's just under a thousand lines long, taking you through Neoplatonism and scholasticism and ending with references to the female first person, the I of the poem, capital I, not E-Y-E. And you see that it's Sorwana and her lifelong passion for knowledge. That's at the heart of it. Here's how it begins. First I dream. Pyramidal, doleful, mournful shadow born of the earth, the haughty culmination of vain obelisks thrust toward the heavens, attempting to ascend and touch the stars, whose resplendent glow, unobscured, eternal scintillation, mocked from afar the tenebrous war, blackly intimated in the vapors of the awesome, fleeting adumbration. This glowering shadow touched the edge but did not wholly absorb the goddess's orb. 3. Diana's faces that show her beauteous being in three phases, but conquered only air, misted the atmosphere that darkened densely with each exhalation. And in the quietude of this silent kingdom, only muted voices could be heard from nocturnal birds. So solemn and subdued, the muffled sound did not disturb the silence. The poem then takes us through Homer's ideas of the pyramids, the failed flight of Icarus, Morpheus, the image of death, Atlas, Olympus, the soul contemplating creation, the effects of night and darkness, sleeping humans, sleeping animals, the four humors of the body, the workings of the body, science, the intellect, and so on. There's a tradition in the Spanish Baroque poems of this period of the desengano, sudden realization that one sees or believes is not necessarily real or true. 
appearances deceive us, which raises questions about the world and its rationality and where our intellect fits in. And what does that mean, that we're deceived? And where the unjust govern the just, and evil triumphs over good? What does it mean when utopian ideals crash against historical reality? where noble savages and incarcerated slaves are side by side, where ancient gods give way to the modern god. What fills that emptiness, if indeed it can be filled? And even as Spain joined Europe in feeling this way, wasn't New Spain the ultimate place where this could be enacted? Wasn't New Spain the place where civilizations clashed, where the exuberant natural environment with thick jungles and massive rivers and birds with gorgeous colors, and foods, and the heat, and the atmosphere, and the people, the thoughts of a people, the minds of a people, the religions, the languages, the way of life, encountering the imposition of European thought and culture and history, the church in the village, the city on the plain, the house on the hill, the conquering force, and the disease, and the weapons, and the technology, and the efforts to convert, the translations, the attempts to understand the humanity in its different costumes and uniforms and physical manifestations. Wasn't that where the mind would be most challenged and also most ill at ease? The spiritual longing, the intellectual longing, wouldn't this be where it all took place? And Sor Juana Ines was right there, absorbing it all and letting it out, telling us what it was like to be in that mixture of a culture with extremes, in a library that may or may not help make sense of it all, or any of it. And here's a taste of those final lines, the end of this spiritual journey. Finally, Dusk could see at last a vision of the fugitive pass, and with her zeal on the mend from ruin forces a second wind, and she, in that half-globe where the sun withdrew the sheltering garrison rebelling again, makes up her mind to seize the crown a second time. While in our hemisphere a skein of golden sunlight shines again, and with its fair judicious light distributes equally, and shares with all things visible their hues, and with this restoration makes the exterior senses operate more certainly. As daylight breaks on the illumined world, and I awake. Let's turn now to another poem, a sonnet of hers called A Response to Jealousy. This is from 1690, and it's more of a secular poem. I think it gives you a sense of the range that she had, the ability she had to turn to matters of earthly love. Her trip to the convent really appears to be the Virginian, Virginia, sorry, Virginia Wolfian search for a room of one's own. She wanted to be free, intellectually free. Apparently, there's some evidence of a relationship she may have had with another woman at the convent, but I'm not sure how definitive that evidence is. Whether this is, this poem, the subject of the poem, is real or imagined, same-sex or not, or whether it's merely a great humanist showing her understanding of the human condition is a little hard to say. Certainly, one thinks it's based in some kind of actual feeling. I would imagine that she knew what it felt like to be jealous, though it's not clear to whom she's addressing the poem. And maybe this isn't a jealous love, or maybe it's not jealous sexual love, but jealousy of another kind. Perhaps not sexual love, but spiritual or intellectual, the jealousy of friendship or mentorship, the jealousy of another's devotion to God. But in any case, here it is, a response to jealousy. 
This afternoon, my dear, when I spoke with you in your countenance and in your acts, I saw that with words I could not persuade you. So I desired that you see into my heart, and love, which aided my intent, overcame that which seemed impossible. Since amidst the tears that sadness unleashed, my heart undone dropped within me. Enough, then, of harshness, my dear, enough. Neither torment yourself more with these tyrannous doubts, nor let vile distrust oppose your peace of mind with foolish shadows or vain evidence. Since already in flowing humor, you saw and held my helpless heart between your hands. Here's another poem called Love Opened a Mortal Wound. This one, too, is enticing. It's not what we might expect from a nun. One wonders where this came from. Love Opened a Mortal Wound, like uh, a response to jealousy, is 14 lines, a sonnet. Here we go. Love opened a mortal wound in agony. I worked the blade to make it deeper. Please, I begged, let death come quick. Wild, distracted, sick, I counted, counted all the ways love hurt me. One life, I thought, a thousand deaths. Blow after blow, my heart couldn't survive this beating. Then, how can I explain it? I came to my senses. I said, why do I suffer? What lover ever had so much pleasure? And here's another one of her poems called You Foolish Men, which talks about the sexual relationship and the hypocrisy of men and the position that their attitude toward women places them in. It was a great theme for Sor Juana Inés in her plays. For example, she used cross-dressing and humor to satirize the double standards of men who solicit sex outside marriage, but then insist on marrying virgins. Here's the poem, You Foolish Men. You foolish men who lay the guilt on women, not seeing you're the cause of the very thing you blame, if you invite their disdain with measureless desire, why wish they well behave if you incite to ill? You fight their stubbornness, then, weightily, you say it was their lightness when it was your guile. In all your crazy shows, you act just like a child who plays the boogeyman, of which he's then afraid. With foolish arrogance, you hope to find a Tice in her you court, but a Lucretia when you've possessed her. What kind of mind is odder than his who miss a mirror and then complains that it's not clear? Their favor and disdain you hold in equal state. If they mistreat, you complain. You mock if they treat you well. No woman wins esteem of you. The most modest is ungrateful if she refuses to admit you. Yet if she does, she's loose. You always are so foolish. Your censure is unfair. One you blame for cruelty, the other for being easy. What must be her temper who offends when she's ungrateful and wearies when compliant? But with the anger and the grief that your pleasure tells good luck to her who doesn't love you, and you go on and complain. Your lover's moans give wings to women's liberty, and having made them bad, you want to find them good. Who has embraced the greater blame and passion? She who solicited falls, or he who fallen pleads? Who is more to blame? though either should do wrong, she who sins for pay, or he who pays to sin. Why be outraged at the guilt that is of your own doing? Have them as you make them, or make them what you will. Leave off your wooing, and then, with greater cause, you can blame the passion of her who comes to court. Patent is your arrogance that fights with many weapons, since in promise and insistence you join world flesh 
and devil. Trouble began for her when she criticized a famous sermon that had been written 40 years earlier. The Bishop of Mexico pretended to be impressed and asked her to write down her criticism. He then published the critique without her permission or knowledge, condemning this woman for her views and in particular for being a woman with intellectual views at all. So she wrote a response, a self-defense of her right as a woman to be educated, to have access to education, and a criticism of the church patriarchy for denying this to her and to other women. She said that she herself believed her own education and her reading and her scholarship and her writing was a way to serve God. An educated mind can serve God. It can be put to good use to serve God. Let's hear a little of her brave defense of women. This one comes from A Spiritual Self-Defense. Quote, Like men, do women not have a rational soul? Why then shall they not enjoy the privilege of the enlightenment of letters? Is a woman's soul not as receptive to God's grace and glory as a man's? Then why is she not able to receive learning and knowledge, which are the lesser gifts? What divine revelation, what regulation of the church, what rule of reason framed for us such a severe law? End quote. Elsewhere she said, I have this nature. If it is evil, I am the product of it. I was born with it, and with it I shall die. In her famous work, Response to Sor Philotea, she wrote, I suffer no blame as I have no obligation, no discredit as I have no possibility of triumphing, and ad impossibilita neme tenetur. No one is obliged to do the impossible. But her troubles continued. A phase of martyrdom, martyrdom began as the condemnation continued. Here's a poem called Since I'm Condemned. Since I'm condemned to death by your decree, Fabio, and don't appeal, resist, or flee the wrathful judgment, hear me, for there's no culprit of such guilt should be refused confession. Because, you say, you've been informed my breast has caused offense to you, I stand condemned, ferocious one. Does uncertain news, not fact, achieve more in your obdurate breast than experience of so many truths? If you've believed in others, Fabio, why not believe in your own eyes? Why, reversing the sense of law, deliver to the rope my neck? You're as liberal with your rigors as meanly strict with favors. If I have looked at other eyes, Fabio, kill me with your wrathful eyes. If I serve another care, let your implacable anger serve me. And if another's love diverts me, you, who've been my life, strike me dead. If I have viewed another with delight, never be delight in our mutual looks. If with another I engaged in pleasant speech, let your eternal displeasure point at me. And if another love disturbs my sense, chase out of me my soul, who've been my soul. But as I die without resisting my unhappy lot, my only wish is you allow me choose the death I like. Let my death be of my choice, for your mere choice continues me in life. Let me not die of harshness, Fabio, when I can die of love. That will do you credit. Redeem me, since to die for love, not for guilt, is no less a death, but more an honored one. And now, finally, I seek your pardon for all the wrongs I did to you through love. Wrongs they are, and they deserve your scorn. Your offense is just in my accosting you, because by loving you, I turn you to ingratitude." She has become an inspiration for many. 
as her works and the story of her life have been rediscovered. Octavio Paz, her great champion, said her poetry was the most important produced in the Americas, at least until the age of Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. That's 200 years until someone of her stature arose. Margaret Atwood wrote a poem about her. There have been plays and television shows and documentaries. She's become a leading figure for Mexico, an example of the courage of women throughout history. She's on Mexican currency now. The town where she grew up was renamed after her. I'll give the last word to her great friend, Carlos de Siguenza y Gongora, who spoke at her funeral. We don't have a full record of his remarks, but we do have a quote of his about her, and we can imagine that this was the general theme of what he said that day. Quote, There is no pen that can rise higher above the eminence that she reached. The fame of Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz will only end with the world. There we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. Wow. Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, the forgotten women of literature, just kept giving and giving and giving, didn't it? I'm definitely going to do a part two on this topic. It was so inspiring to me. These women were amazing, and we have contemporary examples, too. We can focus on more recent works next time. That will have to wait at least a month, however, because next month is October and we're diving into Edgar Allan Poe. Some of the most famous works and some of the not-so-famous. We'll hear what that dark master has for us in the month of Halloween. Fascinating creature, fascinating life, fascinating stories. Poor Edgar, he was a suffering soul as well. Aren't we all? I guess that's right. But as long as I have you, dear listeners, my suffering is not absolute. I'm Jack. Wait, we're not done yet. Thanks to the emailers, the listeners who sent their beautiful messages, and, oh, we're in the Podglomerate Network. Almost forgot that. www.thepodglomerate.com and a member of Lidhub Radio. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Pod Glomer. A Sonic Universe.